Thank you, Lord. Well, uh, I think it was uh, 1543 when there was a revolution. It was called the Copernican Revolution. Copernicus, uh, an astronomer, mathematician, physicist, basically presented to the world something that would change the world forever. And until that point, the so-called Ptolemaic view of the universe was ascendant. The idea was that the earth was at the center of the universe because when you just had a casual observation of the world around you, it appeared as though everything revolved around a static earth. The sun rose, the moon would rise and wane. The universe appeared to orbit the earth. Then Copernicus, using, of course, the mathematical apparatus that had been provided to him by others, said, I think we've got it wrong. The heliocentric view of the universe became the new idea, rejected by many, opposed by the church, and yet now demonstrably true. The sun is at the center of a solar system that orbits that sun. That revolution was enormously significant. It changed the way that people thought of themselves. It changed the way that they thought of the universe. It changed the way that they understood how things operated. If you listen carefully today, there is a Copernican revolution that is on offer. And it will change everything for you. It will change the way that you view your life and it will change the way that you view the life of others. And we discover it by looking at the life of Jesus and what it is that he has to offer us. We're going to continue in our study of John by reading from John chapter five. John chapter five, like many of the chapters of John, is a long chapter. I'll read a portion of it and then make reference to other parts of it as I comment on the things that I think God wants to say to us today. John chapter one, uh, John chapter five and verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. There a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the waters are stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. 
At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now John is very selective about the miracles that he records in his gospel. He's very careful in the curation of the content of this portion of scripture. And the reason for that is perhaps John is the last document of the New Testament. John, the writer of this, wrote three short letters to the churches for which he was responsible, and of course, the book of Revelation. But many scholars believe that those documents were written and published before John's gospel. John's gospel, in many ways, fills in the blanks, gives us a complete picture of what it is that we already have, so that we, we can have some of the questions that we might have answered by the text of this gospel. What questions might be answered by this? Well, why does God heal some people who don't ask for it or appear to deserve it? I mean, it's kind of a surprising thing, isn't it? Here's this man. He's lying in the house of mercy. That's what Bethesda means. He's been lying there waiting for the waters to be stirred in the pool. One of the ancient manuscripts that supports this text says that they believed that an angel would come from time to time at an unspecified moment. You just had to be ready. And if you entered the waters at the right moment, when the waters were stirred by an angel, then you would be healed. And of course, it was as things always are. The powerful and the privileged got to get closer to the pool than others. This man had been there for 38 years. And when Jesus said to him, do you want to get well? A good question for all of us. Do you want to get well? He said, well, I mean, me wanting to get well is not really the issue. The issue is I can never access the healing because I can't get there. So this this. This miracle is giving us a little bit of an insight into this really big question. A question that surrounds all of the questions of good and evil, of sickness and sadness in the, in the world. Of course, we recognize that God's able to change things in a moment. God is a God of miracles, but how come he chooses some people who are not even asking for it? And from the disposition of the guy, he never becomes a follower of Jesus as far as, we're, as far as we're able to discern. Doesn't appear to deserve it anyway. So here's a miracle that helps us understand that. 
And of course, it helps us to understand some other things as well. Jesus, on this occasion, makes a specific mention of the connection between sin and sickness. Now, as you read the rest of John's gospel, you'll discover that Jesus, in fact, wants people to separate in their minds this this popular notion that it's because of the things that you've done wrong or maybe your parents around you that you are living with the sickness or the conditions that you suffer with. That was the, the popular understanding of the day. And Jesus over and over again reveals that his his work of mercy, his work of grace, his work of kindness and love doesn't take into account what it is that people have done previously. But on this occasion, Jesus makes a special mention. He says, look, you're well now. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. There's no universal connection between all sin and sickness of course but occasionally there is occasionally there is you can get better if you change your behavior in some situations and circumstances and and so again this gives us a a fuller picture a fuller understanding of what it is that's going on here. But perhaps the biggest question of all is the question that we feel somewhat diffident to ask. How did Jesus know to go to this guy? We're supposed to be disciples of Jesus. Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 14, verse 12, that because he's going to the Father, the great things that he's been doing will be done by his followers and even greater things. So if this is the kind of thing that Jesus does and it's the kind of things that he's expecting from his community of believers, we better find out how he did it. How did he spot the guy? How did he understand what was going on? And how did he know not only that it was the right thing to do but then the right counsel to give to the guy afterwards how did he know all that well Jesus makes it absolutely clear in John chapter 5 verse 19 if you've got your bible there in front of you just turn to it Jesus is being challenged by the religious leaders who have spoken to the man and chastised him for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They say to Jesus, what's going on here? And he replies by saying this, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now this riled up the religious leaders because he was making himself equal with God by calling himself the son and was indicating that he had some personal and private access to God that they didn't have. But this is clearly what John wants us to understand so that we as disciples can learn how to imitate the life of Jesus. But how? 
How do we get there? Well, perhaps a quick overview of where we've come from in this gospel from chapter one to this point. Chapter one, of course, includes the introduction to the gospel that tells us that the Son of God is described as the Word of God, the final communication of God, the final word, the word that fully articulates, describes and reveals who God is. The Word, present at creation, the executive in all that God was doing, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us full of grace and truth. Most people reject him, but to those who receive him, he gives them the authority to be the children of God. He gives them the authority to to embrace his identity as the son of God. Jesus then goes on in the first chapter to to hearken to what it is that's going on. John the Baptist is, is preparing the way. He's pointing out Jesus as the Lamb of God. His disciples, John's disciples, begin to follow Jesus. Jesus speaks to them, gathers them, leads them in the way. John chapter 2 takes those first few disciples and his mother Mary to a new scene, to a wedding in Cana in Galilee. They're on their way home. They stop in the home of someone obviously that they knew, a family connection. The wine runs out. What's the big message? The big message is this, that the, that the, the ceremonial law, there were big vessels there for people to wash their hands as they came into the feast that were prescribed by the law of Moses. The great vessels were filled again with water by the servants and Jesus told them to do it and then said, take from the vessels just a portion and and give it to the host and it's the best wine that anybody's ever tasted. The big theme is that where the law is able to deal with the outside, Jesus is able to do something that we take on the inside. And the thing that we take on the inside is so much superior to the thing that is used on the outside that we now really are amazed at the comparison between the two. The law of Moses has been superseded by the work of Jesus. Jesus wants to do something on the inside. And what would that be? Well, Jesus makes it clear that that he is the very gateway of God where people saw the physical representation of that gateway in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus says, I'm now that gateway. I am the stairway to heaven. And then in chapter three, he says, and if, if you will be born again of the spirit by believing on me, by looking to me as I'm lifted up, if you'll look to me, as the, as the center of your life, as the solution to your sin and your sickness, if you'll see me as, the, as the, the, the reason for living, then you will be born again of the Spirit. The thing that's represented by the wine coming inside the person 
is actually a picture of what it is that God wants to do on the inside of each one who believes in Jesus, they're to be born again. What would that look like? Well, Jesus meets with an outcast woman, a woman on the very margins of religious life and society, a woman who has lived a life that everyone in that part of the world believed was shameful. Going to the well in the heat of the day because she didn't want to meet people, she met Jesus. And Jesus spoke not of the static water at the bottom of the well being the means of refreshment, but of a spring of life, of living water that he could give that bubbled up inside each person. What does, this, what does this born again life look like? It looks like God the Spirit coming inside of you as living water. Living water is the means by which a person is cleansed. Living water is now inside you. There is a permanent source of cleansing. There's a permanent source of life. There's a, there's a permanent source of personal transformation and it's not from the outside but it's from the inside this is the Copernican revolution in religion everything up until this point and every other religion that you've ever encountered deals with the outer somehow having an influence on the inner Jesus switches it. The inner now influences the outer. It begins from within. It it starts in the very heart of a person. Like wine, it comes into the person. It can only happen through the spiritual new birth that the Holy Spirit will give to each person that believes in Jesus and rests all of their trust in him. But when it happens, you have a source of of forgiveness, a source of cleansing, a source of personal transformation that will never cease. It will bubble up to eternal life, says Jesus. And that bubbling up to eternal life, that living water, will mean that you become the kind of worshipper that God is looking for. Because the kind of worshipper that God is looking for, Jesus says to this marginalized woman, the kind of worshipper that God is looking for is the kind of worshipper who can connect from within to without, from the inside to the outside. Now, the religious leaders, the religious elite at the time, of course, had spent their entire lives developing enormously complex disciplines to help them manage their sin that was always crouching near them from the outside to the inside. Don't do this, don't do that. God said, you mustn't do this. So maybe what we should do is we should have two or three or four or five or maybe a hundred 
little rules that will prevent you from, from breaking the big rule. Let's make sure that we are really diligent about this. Let's make sure that we become kind of ninjas in what it means to live the religious life. Let's make sure that every possible eventuality of the outside world that might somehow sully the inside world is taken care of. And this incredible diligence and discipline would wear people out. And they would live in a constant sense of fear and shame, guilt creeping up on them every day. Because the only way that they could imagine that they could somehow please God is to live a life of such religious discipline that they might one day get one 24-hour period when they do good instead of bad. And yet, it never happened. Because it can't. Our disposition, our nature, is such that it's impossible for us to change who we are. It's a given. And so how would we change? At the beginning it says, we've received from him grace and truth. Moses gave the law, but from him we received grace and truth. And from his grace, grace upon grace. A gift upon a gift upon a gift. The gift of living water, the gift of his presence by his spirit within us that means that it's not dependent upon our effort, it's simply dependent upon his grace upon grace. And that grace upon grace, because it comes with truth, means that now we have a continuous source of internal transformation that is the presence of the living God himself. And that means that all of reality has now got a new definition. Truth is not defined by a proposition Truth is defined by a person who is called the truth and he either lives in you or he doesn't. Now, of course, that transformation has taken place in the lives of many Christians and unfortunately, they live as effective agnostics to that truth and the truth of course is the truth that is intended to set them free but, but because they don't attend to the reality of the inner life defining the outer life then the bubbling spring continuing to do the work that it always intends to do is ignored because they assume that 
they've got to do the thing that other religious people do and seek to please God by the way they behave. Seek to improve themselves by their own discipline and diligence. And the great sadness is that the great gift of God lies unnoticed and unembraced because we've learned to be religious and we found great affirmation from the other religious people around us for demonstrating the behavior that looks religious. And so the spring within us, the life within us, the grace and truth within us means that we live our lives as if the transformation had never taken place. You see, what Jesus makes clear to the people that are challenging him is if this transformation takes place, then everything can change and you can do the things that I do. Look at chapter 5 and verse 38. Uh, We'll read from verse 37. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders who are persecuting him now. Not just just challenging him, but they're persecuting him. They're, They're wanting him to feel alienated. They're wanting him to feel separate. They're wanting him to feel as though he's doing something wrong. Verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he sent. You diligently studied the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Wow. He could say that right now, couldn't he? To just about every church in America. It's a shocking indictment that we pour over the scriptures. We try to work out what they mean. We, we go to the ancient languages in which they're written, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And we, we look at every concordance available. And today, of course, you don't have to have degrees. You just have to have Google. And we can pour over these scriptures, wondering what they mean. And yet Jesus says very clearly, The reason you don't understand them is because you don't recognize that the living word is available to you on the inside. So you can understand the written word which can only ever be on the outside. Now let's be clear about this. The Bible 
is the single most important material gift that God has given to humanity. No question. Hands down the most important gift. But you can't understand the scriptures. How could you possibly understand the scriptures? They're God's word. You might be able to look at the technical details, but you won't ever understand what they mean, what you're supposed to do about it, unless the living word resides within you so that what's on the inside is confirmed by what you read on the outside and so that what you read on the outside is understood and interpreted on the inside. It's about Jesus and he lives in you or he doesn't. This is so important. The way that you will become familiar with the meaning of the word of God is by attending to the living word within you first. Before you ever attend to the necessary disciplines and diligence that you will need to acquire to understand the written word without. And yet, we don't do that. It's amazing to me. I mean, you know, I've been in this job for a long, long time. Longer than most of you have been alive. One of the big questions that people ask me after just about every time I preach, they say, so when you say listening to God, Is it a voice? Is it? What, what is it? And I say to them, well, do you have any thoughts? Occasionally. <laughs> are, are they a voice? No. Sometimes. It's usually my mother's voice. <laughs> See, we, we're quite able to attend to an inner life full of pictures and dreams and thoughts and imaginations and reflections and fantasies. And yet, we can't imagine that God is able to inhabit that space, that reality, and communicate to us in the same ways. He's given us, the, he's given us the, the necessary tools. He's given us the, the necessary fiber and fabric. What he wants to do is he wants us to surrender all of that so that all of it is now breathing, is now animated with the word that he wants to speak to us. You see... The simple idea is this. If there's something being said out there, we're supposed to be able to interpret whether it's Jesus by the voice in here. And the reason that we find that so difficult is because we've never made that 
the principal task of our life. The muscle is so weak and effete that it's unable to do hardly anything. But we have to get after it. We've been meeting for daily prayers in-house and online for four years. Nearly four years. It was the summer of the first year I was here when we started to do that. And uh, when I started, I would, uh, I'd say, as I often do, so, what's God been doing? What are you thankful for? First couple of times we tried that, people were kind of silent. And I said, oh, God's not done anything then? Well, and then they feel embarrassed. And, oh, well, sunshine and um, children sometimes. And... Uh, And so we had to learn how to grow the muscle of thanksgiving. Now, some mornings, you can barely get started in prayer because there's so many thanksgivings. Because they're like spiritual athletes as far as thanksgivings are concerned. And in those first few weeks and months, I would say, now let's just have a quiet now. And if the Lord gives you a, a verse or a song or a picture or maybe he's given you a dream, then just share it ringing silence now if I leave it for a minute I have to say to people no no I don't mean start talking now I mean leave it for a minute because the muscle of listening has grown and we've become more attentive more capable of hearing, more capable of, of understanding what it is that God is saying. You see, we'll spend so much time and energy and frankly money on trying to understand the scriptures, rightly so. And yet, so little time in attending to the voice of Jesus within you study the scriptures because you think eternal life is found in them. It isn't. It's found in Jesus. There's only one place you find eternal life. It's in Jesus. Look at verse 48. Maybe not 48. Which one is it? I know. It's somewhere there. Let's have a look. Verse 41. Let's just read from verse 41. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in the name of my, in, in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. I know you, says Jesus, and I know that you do not have the love of God in your heart. How does he know that? Because they've never been transformed. Because God has never taken up residence. Because God has never taken up residence, 
Of course, the love of God cannot be present. It can be present around them, but not from within them. So, to come back to our question that seems to be the most important question in the passage. How does Jesus know how to go to one particular person around a pool in the midst of so many people who are longing to be healed? Because he hears the voice of his father and is conditioned by his love to recognize what it is that he's saying and what it is that he's doing. Jesus wants us to become great at this. Jesus wants us to become experts in this. Jesus wants us to become such amazing examples of this that people come to us and say, teach me about what it means to have the word of God within you. Teach me what it means to have the love of God in your heart. Teach me so that I can look at the world and know what it is that God is saying and know what it is that God is doing. Help me. That's what God wants. It's a revolution that God wants. You see, the first revolution is the revolution that removes you and me from the center of the universe. That's a big revolution. Yeah? God gets to be at the center of the universe. That's a big revolution. Amen? The bigger revolution, now hear this, the bigger revolution is to realize that God is at the center of everything and he lives in you. We get it? He gets it. So, so here we are. A revolution that God wants to bring about in the world. People who are animated by the Spirit. People who are governed by his word. People who are able to take initiatives of love not because it's something they hear from the outside. Something that happens on the inside. It's a complete transformation of the way that we understand the workings of faith. And if we will embrace this, then frankly, a lot of things start to change. But let me give you some practical examples to, to conclude our time to get today. What is it that we can look around and say, okay, that's what God's doing. I'll give you some examples. The Chosen television series that has had enormous impact. I'd say that's something that God's doing. Yeah, I think it's something that God's doing. The Jesus Revolution, I went to see it last night awesome it was great for me because it reminded me of the days when I became a Christian 1974 the kind of afterglow of the Jesus revolution even us in England got in on it <laughs> cold miserable old England even we got in on the revival 
Jesus Revolution is an amazing film. I mean, there's hundreds of people in the theater and they're watching a story told with the clearest articulation of what it means for a person's life to be changed by Jesus. It's an incredible thing. These are some of the things that God's doing. What else is he doing? All those young people at Asbury. Do you think that's something that God's doing? Okay. Now listen to me. If that's what God's doing around us, and we can sense the confirmation of that within us, then what's the next step? What's the next step? Surely the next step is to step into the fray and do something. Does God want another Jesus revolution? Well, the people at Asbury think he does. Do the people at Apex think he does? Try another one. We're all learning the Discovery Bible method here in our house churches and households. We're doing it on Friday night lights. Those of you who will be there on Friday, it's going to be awesome. We're doing it in lots of different places, in the prisons, in the homeless hostel. I mean, lots of things are going on with this Discovery Bible method that seems to be breaking out. Well, a good friend of mine, Robert Pittman, who's a pastor down in Louisville, he, uh, he won't mind me telling you this because it's just part of his current testimony. He, he came to me in December and said, I think I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I think I'm done. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, I, I think I'll get a job and just be a kind of freelance evangelist and tell people about Jesus. I just don't think I can do this thing anymore. Lead a church. He was struggling with his... With his family relationship he's struggling with all kinds of things in his in his ministry and we talked about it a little bit and he said could I come to daily prayers with you and your people I said yeah there's maybe eight nine ten people daily and probably from a pool of 30 people they're regularly there and they turn up on a Tuesday evening to pray he said, oh, that'd be great. And he said, and, and you read the passage that you're going to preach on the next Sunday and just kind of give a few reflections for a couple of years. I said, yeah. He said, well, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do that too. Maybe I'll pick up the same passage that you're going to preach on and we could kind of, sure, let's do that. And I said, and maybe that thing that you're learning from that other group about Discovery Bible and that we're learning... Maybe that's something that you could do. And he said, oh, okay. Well, this week he came to our prayer times and then to the leaders' huddles that I do during the week for people in lots of different parts of the country and around the world. And he said, I've got eight Discovery Bible groups going. They're all growing and multiplying. It's so exciting. And I thought it was over a couple of months ago. And I said, tell us more, Robert, you see, because the voice in me 
was witnessing to the voice outside of me. And Jesus was saying, you need to listen more closely because he's got some stuff for you. I said, what do you do? He said, well, what I do is I, I just am friendly and have simple conversations with people. And occasionally, those simple conversations become serious conversations because people want to talk about serious things. And then often there's a, a, there's a moment when the serious conversation becomes a spiritual conversation. And I said, wow, how does that happen? He said, usually there is a conversation about what we're struggling with. I said, what, you just ask them what they're struggling with? Seems like a bit of a weird thing to do in Starbucks. He says, no, in the midst of the serious conversation, I tell them what I'm struggling with. And then it gives them permission to tell me what they're struggling with. And I say to them, I think the solution for my struggle is Jesus. And I think it might be the solution for your struggle too. And I'm looking for someone to read the Bible with and maybe you'd like to do that and we could look at that together. So simple. Well, uh, I don't know how to do that. I, I've got a broken heart. People I, I wanted to help me, hurt me and use that. I just feel burned out right now. I don't, I don't have any resources available. Use that. In the midst of the serious conversation, share your struggles, lead with your need. And it becomes a spiritual conversation almost immediately. Does that sound like Jesus to you, by the way? You see, you can see what the Father's doing. You can know what he's saying because you've just demonstrated it. You agree with me, the chosen. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure that God's doing that. Jesus' revelation, certain. Discovery Bible, absolutely. I'm so glad that people are going to the movie theater, watching their television and having Bible studies. It's great. Praise the Lord. It's what the Father's doing and we're supposed to be doing it too. It's what he wants us to do because he's revealing what it is that he's doing. He's sharing what it is that he's saying. Does anybody hear me? You see, if you'll put this little thing into practice today, you just heard it and something in you agreed with what it was that I was saying and it's not just because I've got an English accent and you think it's cool it's because the voice inside of you that is there because you're born again tells you this is what the father's doing this is what the father's saying and he says do you know what you could really build that muscle if you did the next thing Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. Don't come up with a better plan. There's not a better plan. 
Is there a better plan than doing what the Father's doing? Is there a better plan than saying something that's kind of amazing, but it's not what God's saying? God might be saying something really simple and he wants you to say it. God might be doing something really just almost kind of naive, but he wants you to do it. A friend of mine, Pete Gregg, said this the other day. He said, I know what you're thinking. He said, but I think I'd prefer to be gullible than skeptical. If it means, if it means I get to do the things that God is doing. We're so afraid, aren't we? And why are we afraid? Because we've lived a religious life that tells us don't do anything wrong. Don't mess up. People are watching. You might get, you might get into real trouble. Do it. Say it. And if it didn't work out, then come back to the drawing board and go, okay, I didn't quite get that. But then do it and say it. Let's build those muscles. Amen?